Hey, it's Greg Brady. Welcome to the Toronto Today podcast for Tuesday, September the 14th. So the story at Western University, it's a massive problem. There clearly were uh, issues of sexual assault, violence. There have been four people arrested so far, and these may actually be unrelated arrests, uh, but it got out of hand and then some. It's a huge, huge issue. And that's all people in London are talking about right now. So we talked about it at the start of our seven o'clock hour, and we wanted to get a voice on the ground there and especially talk about issues of equity equals of uh, stemming and curbing this kind of violence, especially at a university, especially this time of year. Dr. Annalise Trudell joined us on the show to do just that. Uh, Joe Cressy is, of course, the uh, chair of the Board of Health for the city of Toronto. And we talked to him about well, basically, the uh, I think the wet blanket that the protests were on Monday. Nobody uh, knew what quite what to expect, and it was kind of a flat, tepid protest. We talked to him about that, but also a lot of parents are some kind of fired up about extracurriculars, not understanding why they're not happening for the Toronto District School Board. We talked about that. And Dr. Stephanie Schwinard from Royal Military College on the latest trends in our federal election, what her expectations are over the next few days of campaigning, and the end result, what it would mean for Aaron O'Toole to come close but not win, what it would mean for Jugmeet Singh to potentially have the third most amount of seats. So we get there in our Toronto Today podcast. Have a listen. Let me start with this story in London, Ontario. You've been probably talking about it. I heard Kelly Cotrera on the uh, aforementioned, aptly named Kelly Cotrera show uh, navigate this topic brilliantly in the car, and I wanted to give props to her for doing that. She wasn't in the car. I was. Rob, was she in the car for that segment? No. Uh, she was, actually. Just driving and she doing the show at the same time? She was in her backseat, yeah. That's multitasking if I've ever... <laughs> see, call that see a cross promotion yeah but it's interesting because she had calls from um parents talking about you know, and she mentioned uh, anecdotally that she had a friend drop her kid off at school and that's who um yeah i can handle a uh, canceled soccer game i can handle a uh, you know uh a dish being broken i can handle a lot as a parent stuff if you will i'm not ready for is dropping a kid off at university and i have boys and uh, I get this concept a lot that it's different to be, well, anybody right now. It's different to be a girl going to a college campus. It's different to be a boy than it used to be. But I will lay out some of the some of the stats about this case, some of what we know about this case. And yes, there are numbers in there. They're not really data points, but some of the numbers and what we know about the case at Western University um, but I, I think it's it's important to make that distinction that I don't know that things have changed per se. I always think we're led to believe, well, something is worse. Something is more intense. This is happening more. You were worried um, 20 years ago about how would I put it? I think if you were a female on campus, you were worried about being alone at the wrong time in the wrong place. We had an organization called Foot Patrol in university, Foot Patrol, and you would sign up for Foot Patrol and you would help walk because you'd be you know, licensed to do it, basically. They would know who you were. And the goal was, if you don't feel safe walking home by yourself from a class and the campus, very Western, very leafy, very, um, you know, like th there was a ravine, a bridge you would cross to get back to these residences. 
if you're a Western student, by the way, um, write in on this topic. Feel free. Uh, text me 289-975-1640, 289-975-1640. But you know the bridge I'm talking about. You'd walk back to Alumni House. Um, you'd walk back to Medway. You'd walk back to Sydenham. And this is where the problems occurred at Medway and Sydenham. And I don't doubt this is not unique to Western and campus life. York, Guelph, Laurier, everybody knows when they're like, yeah, I, I could use somebody to walk with. Um, and and I, I didn't worry about that because it's my city. I grew up in London. I feel like I know every nook and cranny and I can raise my hand and say, maybe, you know, by the grace of some higher power of some sort, whatever one you want to uh, pray to uh, in the evening on your knees, somehow, some way, I've never been assaulted. I've never been accosted. I've never been mugged. There were times I told a story about a month ago where um, I was walking down a street, down Piccadilly Street in London, Ontario, and it was maybe one in the morning. And these two guys stopped their car and started hurling every homophobic slur you could throw at somebody. And at that point in time, you're just like rattled. You're incredibly rattled. And your first thought is, What's my, I wasn't carrying, like if I was carrying groceries or carrying a big, you know, uh, if I was coming from playing tennis or had an equipment bag of some sort, I'd be worried because then I'm like, do I drop the bag and sprint if these guys get out of the car? What's the next step here? But I didn't have anything with me, maybe a Walkman. Okay. And, uh, and I'm thinking I can get away in a hurry. I'm probably going to, I'm pretty fast. I was then not now, but I'm, I'm going to get away. And if they get out of the car, I can outrun them. And why would they leave their car? So what's going to happen here? So I can't, I can never put myself, all I can do is try. All I can do is try to put myself in the mind of an 18, 19 year old female on campus. Kelly also astutely made the point as she took some great calls. That's part of the conversation and the fabric of this station is hearing from the people and hearing what they think of things. And she took some great calls from people who who also pointed out, as she did, you go to university a year younger now. And I think about the maturing I did and needed to do from, say, 12th grade to 13th grade because um, I was an OAC student. And uh, and some of what matured me also was going and taking off. I got done in one semester in OAC year. So I switched schools to go to a semester school. Um, I want some new faces, too, to be <laughs> perfectly honest. Uh, that, that's not code for new girls necessarily, but whatever. Let's 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 just continue the conversation. And and I got done, I took a heavy course load four courses plus a lunch. I got done in January and then from January to September. I'm able to live. I'm able to travel, uh, go to concerts, go to Blue Jays games, Tigers games, cross the border, um, drive around, go to Chicago in the summer. I'd never been to Chicago. First, right before university was the first summer I went to Chicago. Um, and so I was able to live, but I wasn't ready to step into a university culture after 12th grade. Kids have to do it a lot faster now. My kid's 15 and a half. He goes in three years. Sure, there's stress. Sure, there's anxiety about it. Here's what we know right now about this particular case. And I wanted to bring up something that is eminently different than it used to be. Students, so students at a residence there um, are, are probing, well, there's a probe into conduct at one residence building. And so far, there have been four arrests made. They haven't revealed um, th th that these cases are connected together. And officials at the school say they don't appear to be. Now, here's what was problematic about this particular story. Um, the 
VP in charge of housing is a guy named Chris Allen. Chris Allen says Western has received rights in a written statement. Western's received four formal complaints of sexual violence from students over the past week. We have taken swift and strong action in these cases, including facilitating arrest and removing students from residence. While investigations continue, I can't emphasize enough that sexual violence will never be tolerated at Western. We will continue to take action on every disclosure and complaint. Now, I know what you're probably thinking. What was the delay here? If you say it's not tolerated at Western, well, it looked like you tolerated it for a couple days until it's become this massive media story. And while you may want to have that line of criticism directed at Western University, let me make the case and make a defense for the fact that the cops knew nothing about this. They had no complaints. I checked in a couple different times in the day. I know people in London. It's great to know people in London. And at as of 11 a.m., nothing. No police report. No police filing. No nothing. But, but... There were accusations and suggestions of something that was, well, obviously bordering from uh, threatening to horrific for some of the girls that posted on social media. Now, you might be thinking what I'm thinking. It's a different culture. We got a different society now. So much of it is about so much of our experience that we would have had in residence and university is different than it used to be. But, but. Um, If I had a daughter, my emphasis would be this. When this happens to you, social media is the last place you're going and you're calling 911. I can't be considered offside for suggesting this. You want strong action? You're not posting about an assault on TikTok. You're calling the damn police. Now, in that moment, I have empathy and understanding for the girls. I do. And maybe in retrospect, they do it a little bit differently because you I want people arrested. I want students removed from residents that are a threat or a harm to my daughter. Pure and simple. Absolutely across the board. And I listen to people. I listen to peers of mine talk about having daughters. And I recognize it's different than sons. I recognize it is. And we're going to talk to um, a guest in in the eight o'clock hour about a lot of this and a lot of the, you know, problems right now that clearly exist maybe in the university culture period but about this i would say that now i would think males have a heightened awareness beyond the obvious like i'm not just spewing out uh platitudes here i hate this story that's my school that's my hometown i'm really upset that anybody would be uh frustrated and scared and the phrase sexual violence Multiple cases of sexual violence would be mentioned when it comes to Western University. But I'm not some, you know, blooming, uh, what would be the phrase, blooming flower and not thinking that this stuff doesn't go on. And not my universe, it didn't when I was in school. Okay, so it's beyond troubling. And right now, all Western officials can do is wait for the actual cops, not the campus police, not residence coordinators to handle this. They should have been handling it in the first place. The school received four formal complaints of sexual violence from students. The police in London got no complaints of sexual violence from students. We got to fix that somehow. Okay, I'm not suggesting in the least that because of uh, of the girl's actions in terms of what was uh, alleged after the fact, that they're in the wrong. 
They're the victims in this case. Make no mistake about it, okay? Let's not get things twisted here. But I do think there needs to be an emphasis and an education that when this happens, you call the police. You don't go, you don't log on to Instagram. You don't log on to TikTok. And I, I asked, I sort of crowdsourced with a few parents last night of daughters. And I said, is this reasonable? And they're like, oh my God, yes. Okay. We as parents have to absolutely make that a priority to teach uh, our kids this. And our experience at residence, far from what's happening currently. Subsequently, also, you can text, by the way, I'm getting a lot in on this and I will catch up on them at 289-975-1640, 289-975-1640, the reaction to this news from Western and just basically the do's and don'ts of campus life. There's that to consider as well. We're trying to solve a puzzle here. We really are. We're, we're trying to take care of people who um, were sexually assaulted, allegedly sexually assaulted. We're trying to figure out the perpetrators. We're fi- trying to figure out who knew what. And when this is now in the hands of London police, the great question will be, should have it have gotten there sooner? Um, I want to read you some data uh, from Anova Future, and we're going to talk to um, a member of that organization in a little bit about Western University. Here's what they tweeted yesterday. Western is particularly bad for sexual violence, according to Student Voices Survey in 2019. One third of students. One third had been sexually assaulted in the previous 12 months and 71 percent had been sexually harassed. Western had some of the worst numbers of all post-secondary campuses. Drug facilitated sexual assault, while often picked up by media, is not nearly as common as alcohol facilitated sexual violence. And while it's easy to blame the victim for how much they drank, we actually know that men who are intoxicated are more likely to perpetrate. All that's true. All that's entirely accurate. I will tell you two things about going to Western in the early to mid-90s. One, I despised the frat culture. You might have gone to a fraternity. I had somebody try and recruit me who was a baseball coach of mine to a fraternity. I had no interest. Um, I just didn't get a good feel for it. I didn't one bit. Supposedly, it's all cleaned up. But you know that there are campuses in the United States that have had bad incidents that have said, bang, no more fraternities. It's, you know, the jokes aren't funny anymore. The culture doesn't change. It just gets perpetuated on. It's like a dad that drinks who encourages his kid to drink. You're not getting alcoholics out of the family if that's the case. The second thing I want to say before we bring on our next guest is you're hyper conscious. Um, I was hyper conscious all the time to not be misunderstood. You would drink at parties. OK, I'm not a massive drinker. Um, but yeah, I, it's university and kids will drink. We can't be abolitionist about this. We have to understand it will happen, but there's a balance and you're hyper conscious not to have an action misunderstood. And I was just like that. And that was the case in the, you know, I'm not trying to preach a bunch of virtue that, that actually I don't deserve credit for. This is just the household I grew up in and it's the, um, morals and ethics by which I was raised. That said, You were worried sometimes that something could be misinterpreted. Subsequently, camera phones, online, you know, revelations, accusations going viral as opposed to just a call to the police or the authorities. Boys should be hyper aware of this. Parents have to have these discussions with sons, not just from the obvious respect factor, but the idea that anything they do um, could be misinterpreted and anything they they do could be taken out of context, let alone the actual violence. It's 
uh, again, we've got to do better than we're doing so far. Annalise Trudell is the manager of education, training, and research with the group I just referenced, ANOVA, and she's kind enough to join us now with her time. Annalise, thanks very much for coming on Toronto today. I appreciate it. Good morning, Greg. Is the difficult, right? This is a really difficult. I'm laying out a lot of problems there that have a lot of layers and nuance to it, but I- I'm sure. Just for the entire Western community, it's been a harrowing um, 48, 72 hours since the weekend. It is the topic of conversation across campus right now, and and frankly, across the community. I think it's overwhelming. There's grief. There's fear. um, There's this is not the campus. This is not the community I want. Um, Yes, it's at the forefront of our minds. I mentioned uh, we, I know we can't get into the parameters of the case, and that's not uh, you and I aren't, um, you know, uh, Cagney and Lacey. I was trying to think of a better detective duo than that, but I'm dating myself with that reference. Here's <laughs> here. And, and they both were women, so it doesn't work right away. We're in big trouble right away. Here's what I'd say, though. I think what parents are worrying about the text messages I'm getting this morning are concerned that that a campus or a residence or just even a residence hall or floor potentially saw fit to handle this themselves. I understand it's not it's not ideal that the police weren't instantaneously involved when there's the belief of an assault. That said, I'm not naive to think that the first thing a woman thinks about or a man, if they're assaulted, any human being thinks if they're assaulted is, well, I've I've got a you're processing a lot. You're in that physical trauma in that moment. And getting yourself set and organized to call 911, have your story straight, have it all together is is asking an awful lot of people, isn't it? It is asking a lot. And it's also, um, frankly, assuming the bias that that's the best approach. So we talk a lot about believing survivors and absolutely that's true, but we also need to trust them. They're the experts of their own lives and they don't owe us their stories and they don't owe us reporting what happened to them. For many survivors going through the formal reporting process is actually re-traumatizing and that's not what healing looks like. And so I think there's there's a really important conversation happening on social media and in our community around, you know, what is the role of police in this context? And I think a lot of us as outsiders looking in want that sort of instinctual like something has to be done and this needs to be fixed and let's turn to the police but we're actually not going to police our way out of sexual violence and we're not going to police our way to survivors having healing and so frankly in this context we may never know how many uh survivors there are around Mm. this particular incident that may never actually come to sort of the data points that we have and that's okay that's not actually a failure and that doesn't mean it's any less true can I make the case as a deterrent for men or males that uh, that though there is believed to be punishment, if the knowledge is there that the police will be instantaneously involved when there is an assault of some sort, what once someone is comfortable making uh, that report, Annalise, can I make the case that that serves as a tremendous deterrent? I know, right, in, in intoxication, alcohol is involved, so judgment's blurred. It's not an excuse, and not everyone deserves a second chance at anything. Not everyone does. But I'd make the case that if you know that it's going to the cops, it's likely to go there as opposed to staying in a res floor, staying in a residence hall. I don't know. That's a, that's a tremendous deterrent. I would hope to behave better and and for people in that residence hall to point out bad to terrible to awful to dreadful behavior, isn't it? For sure. There's a rule for deterrence here, for sure. But what I don't want to happen is that that's sort of done at the expense of survivors. The way that our system works is that it still requires survivors to tell their story through that process, to show up as a form Mm -hmm. of evidence. 
And in most circumstances, that is the sole evidence. There's usually not necessarily physical evidence to sort of be brought to that. And so a lot of that burden to work its way through the system and to get that um, actually sort of found guilty in that concept is on the back of the survivor. And so I, I hear you, and there's a deterrence factor, but survivors don't owe us that deterrence as a, an outcome of this. No, I agree with that uh, 100%. I also, uh, again, I've got empathy for almost all parties in this scenario. I was mentioning earlier, think about a parent who's so proud to send their son away to university, and they happen to end up in, in Medway residence. Um, um, and they've had this conversation, and that kid is a good boy and follows the rules and know, knows nothing about this. Until we find out the perpetrators of this, it's everybody is is tarred with the same brush, are they not? Like there, there's no innocent bystanders in in the court of public opinion. Sometimes, yeah, sometimes that probably is true, and I think that's a real unfair to the men in our lives to sort of demonize across the board for sure. And that's not where I think we need to go with this. I also just want to point out, though, beyond this particular incident, you know, Frosh Week and O Week has the highest rate of sexual assault of the whole school year. That's when we also get the most requests for counseling and support. That's when there's the most uh, police reports formally through that. And so beyond this moment, you know, it's not just a few bad apples in this particular moment. There are sexual assaults happening Mm -hmm. um, sort of par for the course. And I think we need to be having a more honest conversation about the men in our lives committing violent acts, but who are not maybe the awful, awful demonic humans that we want to make them out to be, that they're actually part of our lives and we need to be able to grapple with that. I think that's such a mature um, and and educated response to this. And uh, and I'd like to believe, look, there are some moments where um, and some actions and incidents where it should be all about accountability. It should all about be action. And uh, and, and, and there should be very little tolerance. I also think Boy, at 18, 19, 20, we better still have teachable moments for men and women. Um, and I'm not talking about somebody that commits a crime and I'm not somebody talking about that somebody that commits an assault, but understanding how to how to you know be in situations and how to how to talk people out of situations, remove a friend from a situation, uh, a male friend that that you're worried about his behavior or he's acting erratically because of alcohol. These were all things. Again, it's so concerning because. We make so much progress. We have so many more conversations, Annalise, than we used to have. But when you hear me, uh, <laughs> I'm not a young kid anymore. When you hear me document concern about a, a, you know, a frat or a campus or, or what Frosh Week was like 28 years ago, we're not making much progress. That's a quarter century of not a lot of progress. You know, I think it really depends how we measure that progress. I think there's parts of what you're saying that's right. And frankly, since the Me Too movement in 2016, we've actually seen an increase in the sort of formal numbers of sexual assault coming forward. But is that because there's more sexual assault happening or because more people are aware of it and are sort of claiming that story as theirs and really owning it and having no shame around it? So I think, you know, one of the metrics that we might use in terms of progress is that there's a decrease of shame of being a survivor. That's absolutely true. I think there's also an increase in the sense of sort of how do we actually navigate consent? What does that look like in practice? Do we have the language to sort of engage around sexual um, conduct? And are we normalizing that? And I think by all metrics in that context, we've seen progress. But you know what? I don't think we've done a good job at really targeting men and engaging with them in a way that doesn't feel like finger pointing, Mm. but really actually helps them understand the impact of their action and calls them to account in that process. And I think Mm. that's where, you know, we're missing the boat a little bit. 
Dr. Annalise Trudell, our guest on Global News Radio 640 Toronto on Toronto Today. She's from Innova Future in London, Ontario, uh, where, as she said, it's uh, all of this at Western University has been the hotbed of conversation. I want to give you a long stretch out for this answer. Um, if you if you were called upon and someone said, redesign how we do things at Western, redesign how we do things at a college campus, and you know the age groups, you were there, I was there, um, boys and girls, um, that's part of the, they pursue each other. They do. That's the, we, we, we learn some tr- very tribal things at that age. Um, gay men pursue each other. Uh, gay women pursue each other. It is part of being a teenager and in your early twenties. But do we need to rethink? Do we need a redesign on some of the regulations and stipulations around this? I'd hate to get to the point where you can't offer to buy somebody a drink or tell someone they looks nice. They look nice. That's a friend. I I don't want to get to those those you know those points. But I also I, I know we need to do some things better. I know we do. Well, that's a big big question. Answer <laughs> 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 yeah, for sure. Um, I, you know, I want to, I want to be fair to the institution uh, just for a second. And I know this is not where you were sort of priming me. It's to okay. go, but I, Western has done a lot in the last few years and all campuses in Ontario actually have. Uh, during the Wynn government, they were required to institute a sexual violence policy and, and implement education around that. And so we've seen a massive surge of sort of the infrastructure on campus around that in the last few years. All incoming first year students have a sexual violence education. All student leaders have that. Um, there's formal accountability processes that we are part of as ANOVA with campus in terms of, you know, if a guy is not expelled, but he needs sort of some support for what he had done, we offer a program on campus for that. Uh, and it's really survivor driven and, and that may not always sort of meet our needs exter- sort of as external folks, but survivors get to say what happens after this happened to them. And it's that sort of the forefront of how we process this. So I want to give kudos to that. Mm-hmm. Does that mean that we're doing enough? No, for sure. And there's always lessons to be sort of learned and moving forward in this. But I, you know, it's not from a failure of lack of action that this is all transpiring. I think that we need to be careful to say that this all happens because of the institution. This is a much larger cultural yes. thing. Yeah. This is sort of our young men in our lives. And I am pointing at that in the sense that it is young men doing it. Um And, you know, we all have a role in that as sort of coaches in our sports leagues. We have a role of sort of normalizing what behavior is appropriate and also how to call a guy out. So, you know, when somebody is in a bar and trying to get a a girl drunk, that might not seem like leading up to sexual assault, but it is. And let's call that out and let's call him in and say, hey, dude, not cool. So there's all kinds of other points of reference into this that are part of the solution I will say I think campuses are grappling with um, something in particular Mm. around what role they have to play in terms of off-campus behavior of their students. And so there's lots of sort of good rules and regulations around what happens on campus, but where does their limit happen in terms of what happens at a party that students are engaging in? And where do they need Mm. to step in on that? And I think there's, there's more work to be done in that context for sure. Annalise Trudell is the manager of education, training, and research uh, at Innova, uh, and they do amazing work. I was looking at their website last night when I knew we'd uh, we'd get to talk. Uh, InnovaFuture.org. Thank you so much for the time. It's such an important. I, I I think we should have more conversations about this in the future. Thanks for making time for our listeners. Thanks for covering the story. Hundred percent. I I appreciate that. Uh, we want to get one call in. Sunny joins us on Global News Radio six forty Toronto. Sunny, you went to Western. You're in really engaged in this topic. Tell us what you think. 
Yeah, you know what? I was a student at Western. I lived at Medway, actually, 1992-93. Uh, so you're an old guy. And, yeah, I sure am. <laughs> and uh, you know what? To be quite honest, listening to it, you know, it always uh, strikes a chord when uh, your old alma mater has any kind of story that you never saw happening. Uh, when I was there first year during Frost Week and orientation, Medway and Sydney actually, we sat down and they did a big talk on sexual violence and abuse mm-hmm. abuses back then. And they actually had a talk about it during that. And for us to still be talking about the same things and people be posting stuff on social medias before, you know, contacting authorities, we still got a lot of work to do here. And uh, this is serious stuff that needs to be addressed. That's what I thought. Thanks for the phone call. I really appreciate it. I want to welcome our next guest on and thank him for his time. He's the chair of the Toronto Board of Health, Toronto City Councillor Joe Cressy. Joe, thank you very much for making uh, uh, the time for our listeners. Thanks. Uh, thanks again. Always good to be here, Greg. Tell me your reaction uh, yesterday. I know we had, you know, 24 hours ago, we're thinking this is the last thing we want to deal with. On It's a Monday, so it's the last thing we want to deal with. Hospital workers are are fried. Uh, they've been uh, our heroes and heroines for months on end, more than a year and a half. The last thing they need is not just the practicality of getting to work and being able to do their jobs, but the, um, you know, just the stress of it, just the anxiety um, I think the protest was was sort of, uh, as I described it, you know, a wet blanket. It wasn't very well uh, attended. It wasn't vociferous. It, it wasn't some kind of mob scene. I was relieved by that. But it's still it's ridiculous that we even have to have conversations about um, the validity of them and uh, and and whether we need law enforcement to patrol these. Well, I guess I, two reactions to, to what we saw unfold yesterday. The first is and it needs to be said again and again and again that to protest out front of healthcare centers, uh, which are literally providing life-saving care, frontline heroes who are doing this day in and day out, is a despicable tactic, and we need to ensure safe access. But I think the, the second point here is there may have been across the entire country a couple hundred people who showed up to try to intimidate healthcare workers yesterday, but on the same day, tens of thousands of Canadians got vaccines yesterday. And that's the real story, is that Mm -hmm. across our country and in Toronto, in record numbers every day, thousands of people continue to get vaccines on the road to 90 percent fully vaccinated, which is the target. And we're going to get there. So the loud voices, these these frankly despicable loud voices, they may have tried to make a lot of noise, but the real noise was made by people getting their shots yesterday. And that's what we just have to continue focusing on. I also draw I, I draw a distinction, and I, th- I think it's a fair one. You tell me if it's not. I absolutely feel, to di- feel free to disagree. A lot of these people have been protesting. And, and again, it is a small, vocal um, minority of people. They've been at Queen's Park. They've come to City Hall. But they've been coming since April and May of 2020. They've been talking about things like the pandemic isn't real and the government control and oversight. And listen, I can't find any two people, my wife and I, I can't find couples that have agreed on all restrictions, all you know, methodology for us to navigate through this. So we're all going to disagree on some things. But I draw that distinction between those who have issues with a vaccine mandate or vaccine passport or asking about access to it. I don't think those people showed up yesterday. I think this was just more the, the former group I mentioned than the latter group, which is why there were so few. Well, listen, people have a fundamental right to protest. And as you say, lots of people have had various reasons and often legitimate reasons to protest over the last 18 months. 
But what people do not have the right to do is to, to harass or interfere with the delivery of health care services. And I think, you know, that type of unacceptable tactic, uh, well, it's left to a small but, but rather unacceptable and despicable few. But here's what's so interesting to me is, you know, when you see the images of, of, of these protesters, you start to think, well, how are we ever going to convince these people to get the vaccine, given how strongly they feel? But let me give you the numbers. In Toronto, our research and polling shows that less than 6% of Torontonians are opposed to vaccines. In fact, the, the largest group of people yet to get a vaccine in our city, but who still want one, have barriers they need addressed. They need help getting to a clinic. They have questions they need answered. And so we as a city and as a society, let's stay focused on reaching everyone everywhere to help them get their vaccines because the target is 90% fully vaccinated. Nearly 84% of residents have already got their first dose in our city and we're on the road to 90. So let's just stay focused and keep working. Joe Cressy is our guest on Toronto Today. Uh, he, of course, uh, city councillor and chair of the Toronto Board of Health. You might have a skeptical listener. It occurs to me there's a there's a remnant of my brain that says if they've had if they've had seven months, let's say, or at least five and a half or six of of uh, close to unfettered access to the vaccines, what will change and why will they get vaccinated in the next five and a half or six months? I don't doubt more will, but what will push us to a huge percentage to get us to ninety? I understand people saying it's going to be a long time till we get to ninety or a ninety five if we get there. What's your response to that? I think that the answer is it takes a number of different techniques and tools because many different people have different needs and questions. Let me paint a picture for you from sure. just last week. Uh, the city of Toronto, we're running 200 weekly mobile clinics, bringing them into TTC stations, libraries, um, workplaces, and so forth to make convenient, to make it easy. Last week, the mayor and I were at a clinic. The first three people in line at this mobile bus clinic the first person, uh, he said he'd wanted to get a vaccine for two months. He just wanted it brought to his door. Well, it was a bus clinic out front of his apartment. He got his shot. The second person, she was a woman who was 30 weeks pregnant, who said she had concerns and questions, but she spoke to her OB right. and was convinced that this was the safest thing to do. And the third guy, he was about 30 years old. He said, listen, he didn't really want to get the vaccine, but now that he needs a vaccine to go inside a bar, he decided to. Three people, three very different stories, mm -hmm. but three, all three of whom got their first dose just last week. And it shows you to reach everyone everywhere in our city in this last mile. It's not the people who are super keen. It's often people who have lots of barriers, access to time, linguistic, you know, that they don't speak the language. But we just need to reach them. And we are. I mean, this is the thing, Greg, is we I truly are. Every day, thousands continue to get their shots. So we are reaching them. And it, it does sound like the last two sounds like that was a choice. There was some hesitancy. There was a a requirement to live the life that they want to live and experience some of the leisure things that we all want to get back to. The first sounded like access. Right. And, and the other two are choice. So can I make the case we've got more about more left that's about choice than access, don't we? Well, so here's and, and I'll come back to the research. So we have. Um, so 84 percent of Torontonians have got their first dose, meaning 16 percent are left to go. What our research found is that 6% of that 16 are opposed. 8% say they are open to the vaccine. They just need help. 
and then 2% uh, were for other reasons. So that 8%, those people who are open to the vaccine, mm. but they need access to it, they need questions answered, uh, frankly, they might just want to have a conversation to understand sure. how beneficial it is. That's the population that we're focused on. And, you know, last week, just last week, we had our largest week of first doses since the beginning of July. And so it shows you, despite how tired we all are, mm-hmm. and, you know, it can be hard to believe. Seven months people have had a chance to get the vaccine. Some still haven't. But that's the fact on the ground. And, and the people who haven't, they're not the loud voices screaming at healthcare workers at the hospital. Rather, they're probably, it's probably the shift worker living in Jane and Finch who just hasn't had the time but wants some help to get the shot. Joe Cressy is our guest on Toronto Today. All right. Got to get to extracurriculars. I'm sure you've heard from parents. I'm sure you've heard how loud they've been. We, we should be loudest more about our kids than even about ourselves. So you've probably heard from parents saying, I don't get it. My kids in high school, let's say especially, my kids are fully vaccinated. They've been playing sports outdoor all summer. Outdoors are remarkably safe. Why would Toronto Public Health, why would Dr. Davila recommend a pause on, on events like cross country or intramural soccer or flag football? when no one else in the province is doing that? Why would that be? Well, and, and I'll, I'll, let me give the, the rationale and from Dr. Davila, our medical officer of health, is I know Dr. Davila and Toronto Public Health are desperate to get uh, those extracurricular activities back online, and, and they are committed to a gradual return as soon as possible. Um, the reason for caution, and some other areas in the province have taken the same approach in Ottawa, in Windsor, for example, is in these first couple weeks of school, uh, as kids are getting back into new cohorts, as systems around testing, contact tracing, screening are being, being developed, we need a cautious approach in these first few weeks to make sure that the protective systems are working before we expand the intermingling of kids from one class cohort mix, mixing with another. And so the reason here is just caution. I mean, I, I listen, I share the same view as those parents. We want our kids to have those outdoor extracurriculars as soon as possible. But, but why is caution going ahead of data? Why is, why is caution going ahead of the actual numbers when kids have been socializing, going to camp, into uh, like overnight camp or day camp, playing sports all summer, sleeping over at houses. Once they got fully vaccinated, Joe, you know, they all got back at it. I get caution, but I don't think it should trump data. Well, I think here's the data is, you know, we have as of yesterday, uh, active investigations around potential outbreaks in 23 schools. And uh, we just in the first three days of school being open. And so we need to ensure in these first few weeks uh, that all those systems are in place around screening protocols. Keep in mind that there is no, in this province, uh, vaccination policy for students in schools. And so, yes, many students who are 12 to 17, in fact, over 80 percent, have been vaccinated, but not all. And so we need to ensure that those rigorous safety protocols to protect those who are most vulnerable are in place. And listen, I, I Greg, I'm with you. Yeah. I want to see a return yeah. as quickly as possible. And I know Toronto Public Health does too. Uh, but the, the word is caution for the next few weeks. And, and I do think after everything we've been through, let's not jeopardize uh, that cautious approach now. But I think a fully vaccinated household and a fully vaccinated high school kid says, where's my off ramp? What's changing for me in the next six months? If, if they've got the shots. And again, 
getting this outdoor activity in, Joe, I'm with you in the sense that the outdoors are more safe than indoors. I just think pausing all the activities, if you want to say, hey, we can't have band practice inside, we can't rehearse a school play in the gym with 50 kids there, I'm with you. But we can we can run cross country, we can play soccer, we can be outdoors. I, 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 I'm, I'm at a loss to understand why that wasn't a distinction by Dr. Davila in that. Well, and I think twofold. First, this is an absolute commitment to a return and a gradual return, not a stop. Uh, that's the first and foremost. So, I mean, we want to see these activities back up and running mm-hmm. uh, and we want to make sure that they're safe. And the second thing, and it's a really good point, what about a vax to play policy? If you're vaccinated, shouldn't you be able to play? And that's something that we and I personally completely agree with. It's something we're in active conversations yeah. with the province on because a vaccine policy for kids in schools will help to get those sports up quicker as well. Yeah. So you know, both things, let's get these open as soon as they're safe and possible. And certainly let's get a vax to play policy in place. Joe Cressy, thank you very much for your time. I always appreciate our conversations. You got it, Greg. All the best. All right. Uh, there's the chair of the Toronto Board of Health. Uh, let's head to uh, RMC. Our next guest, uh, Dr. Stephanie Schwinart, professor there. Uh, it's great to have you on six days before uh, voting. Uh, like, let's let's do this for another few months. Who wants this to end, really, and move back to our normal uh, existences of navigating a pandemic? Let's keep this going, right? Uh, I think uh, a lot of voters uh, would tend to disagree with you really hard right there, Greg. (laughs) (laughs) Anecdotally, Dr. Schwinar, do you look and say the vast majority of people in in my universe know who they're voting for? Are you having conversations with anybody at this point who's an undecided voter, who's back and forth on this? Uh, No, at this point, uh, nobody in my vicinity that doesn't have their mind made up already. In fact, uh, the vast majority of my friends have already voted. I myself have already voted, uh, and so did my partner. So, uh, yeah, and and as we saw over the weekend, a lot of people wanted to take advantage of advance polls. So Mm -hmm. uh, it seems like uh, a lot of people had had their mind made up a, a little while ago already, which means that the last week of the campaign might be uh, less important than it usually is. Yeah, yeah, the very true. Uh, it, Justin Trudeau, with a majority government, went to a minority government from 15 to 19, 23 months ago. Turnout was 67%. Um, and, and we've weighed this back and forth. We're in the midst of a pandemic, but it's obviously a critical election, and Canada feels very polarized. We saw, obviously, a massive voter uptick in the United States going from the 16 election, Hillary Clinton against Donald Trump, to Joe Biden against Donald Trump. That might have been predictable, given the political atmosphere in the United States, do you think we're going well over 67% for turnout? I do not think so. Uh, I would be very surprised if uh, turnout was really high this year. There seems to be um, a lot of folks who uh, don't want to, just don't want to go to the polls, quite frankly. Uh, And also it's been a fairly negative campaign. And despite the fact, as you said, that it's a very consequential election, It seems to me like we haven't talked about a lot of the consequential things during this election. A lot of what uh, kept us busy were were things that are that were, in fact, COVID adjacent uh, and and not really, you know, on the nose uh, to uh, the the challenges that uh, that we're going to face as Canadians. Um, And I'm adding on top of that the fact that uh, Elections Canada has decided to uh, not go ahead with uh, the vote on campus program, which they usually Mm -hmm. run, which means that voter turnout, especially in the 18 to 24 years old bracket, 
is probably going to be pretty terrible this year, I which thought, is unfortunate. I thought about that. I wondered if that if that would indeed um, be the case. Let's go to some of the candidates uh, uh, now. Is there any result uh, that that Aaron O'Toole, if, if the conservatives don't get a minority government, can he claim victory in the least or will some of the same emphasis and some of the same criticism? You and I have talked about the dichotomy between him and Andrew Scheer from two years ago. Can he claim momentum with claim seats? Can he claim he's got Justin Trudeau on the ropes, even if the liberals maintain a minority government? So the, I think there's a big difference to take into consideration between the 2019 election and this election that might allow for Aaron O'Toole to get a bit of a breather from, from, uh, from his base uh, is the fact that they were walking into this election uh, pretty wounded. And in fact, you know, the, the conservative rise is pretty remarkable mm-hmm. this election. Whereas in 2019, a lot of pundits were saying that uh, the election was Andrew Shears to lose, right? Uh, because there was a lot of discontent with, uh, with the liberal government. Uh, and despite the fact that uh, they did manage to gain a few more seats, uh, they didn't get over the hump to, uh, to, become, uh, to become government. So uh, I, I'm thinking that Mr. O'Toole uh, may get uh, a second chance, a second kick at the can mm-hmm. uh, if, uh, if they don't uh, manage to get into government. But he will have to face some pretty heavy criticism from, from within, I think. The fact that you know, he drove a leadership campaign that was uh, you know, true blue, uh, very much further to the right than the campaign we're seeing right now on the ground. I think that's going to uh, create some uh, some uh, fun talks with the, the uh, with uh, the conservative uh, the conservative base, particularly the, the social. Uh, conservative. There's no doubt um, that it, it looks as though uh, the NDP are going to gain seats. They obviously had a, a disappointing election result wise uh, to go from 39 to 24 seats. Their popular vote fell to 16 percent. We're seeing now polls that have the NDP from as much as 21 percent or as little as 21 percent to as much as 23. The seat projection is 31 or 32. It could be very similar to the block. Uh, the NDP could challenge the block and have the third most seats. Is this it will, will that in itself be a really good result for Jugmeet Singh and the idea of positive momentum, especially given that he can still play kingmaker potentially with a Trudeau government? I mean, uh, when you're thinking of the NDP, obviously, the uh, the the new baseline is the 2011 election, right, with the orange wave uh, in Quebec, uh, giving the NDP their their best result ever. Uh, and Mr. Singh keeps on saying you know, we're not vying here to have a seat in the opposition. We want to become government, but everyone knows that's not going to happen. So uh, I think, you know, any gain for the NDP is a good gain, uh, but I I don't think it will be a massive victory if they get back to that 30-ish number of seats. I I, I think the the NDP would like to uh, go back to, to those 2011 numbers. However, right now, that's just not in the realm of possibility for the NDP. Uh, Mr. Singh is really uh, unpopular in Quebec. Uh, and um, again, I'm, I'm going to go back to the youth vote. Mr. Singh is hugely popular with the 18 to 24 uh, cohort mm-hmm. in the rest of Canada. 
but it's unclear how many of those are going to go out to vote this year. It's a rather remarkable time. I was thinking about that, uh, actually, Stephanie, in that we've got, um, obviously, you know, we watch the United States and we think, okay, no matter how people feel politically, we've got a 75-year-old running against a 78-year-old. You don't, (laughs) we've got a really young core of leaders right now for these parties. Um, Maxime Bernier is probably the oldest, and obviously that still is more a fringe party. There's no guarantee uh, there's going to be a seat. And, And Maxime Bernier is only, if I do the math, he's only 58 years old. We've got no party leaders who are approaching 60 anytime soon. Does that mean something for all of their longevity or is the sort of chop and change just inevitable that um, we see it in provincial politics all the time saying you had a couple shots at the Andrea Horvath may face this here in Ontario. It's great that you're the opposition leader. You had a couple shots to topple a government. We got to move to a we got to pivot to somebody else now. Um, I think there's some longevity to, to be considered for, for some of those leaders. Uh, but, you know, I'm, I'm looking at Annemie Paul, for example, mm-hmm. and I think the writing's on the wall for her considering all of the internal turmoil that she's faced. And I think some of her base might regret that right now, considering how well she did in the uh, in the leaders debate last week. Uh, but I don't expect her to stick around very long. Uh, Mr. Trudeau, if you win, if you wins this election, You'll get, you know, another uh, one and a half to four years, depending on, you know, minority or majority government. Uh, but if he loses the election, I'm not thinking he's going to stick around very long. Uh, and, and so it, it's really a question of how long you've been in, into uh, into uh, the position of leader uh, rather than how old you are and, and how much more you've got to go. Right. Love your analysis as always, uh, Stephanie. Thanks very much for making time for our listeners today. We appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to the Toronto Today podcast. We'll be back with a live show tomorrow on Wednesday, 5.30 to 9. It's great to have you in. Please feel free to subscribe to the podcast, rate the podcast. We're good with that. And again, thanks for the time.